listening to Beyond the Game. I love you guys. love the program. You're already famous in Rochester, but watch out world. It's a faith-based sports radio program. That's the dumbest thing I could think of. I love everything about it. The, the, the beards, the handshakes. That just means I'm never leaving my kids alone with you. The ladies are digging my sweet bass. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome in, everybody, along with Zach Barletta. I'm Rick Benson. This is the Beyond the Game program. Very glad to have you along with us, btgprogram.com or at btgprogram. So here we are, Zach. It's the first week after Thanksgiving. For many people, they're now fully embracing the Christmas season. And I realize that in retail, they actually start even before Halloween. And we've been seeing all these ridiculous ads in television for some time now. But for me, The Christmas season doesn't officially begin until Santa Claus is waving to the crowd in front of Macy's at the end of the parade. I actually dislike the Christmas season. Now, don't misunderstand. I love the celebration of the birth of Christ. I love time with family, especially the quiet moments on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. But I can go without the videos of people fighting in some department store over a TV or the constant barrage of marketing and advertisements, as I'm sure you've had for a week or so now. I've been getting a crazy amount of emails. Oh my gosh, yeah. Offering me discounts on this thing or that thing and asking me to give money to their calls while they have matching donors in place or something. But the ads I really hate are the car commercials. Seemingly running during every break, every time out of the games. There are messages often if you don't if you don't buy your spouse this car, then you don't really love them. The one that really gets me is where the woman proclaims that she's got a little something for her and her husband, and she puts down, I think it's a set of sunglasses or something, then he says, I've got something for you too, and they they both go outside, and here's these two SUVs, or maybe they're pickup trucks, one black, one red, and she runs over to the black one. Hey, what are these, $65,000, $70,000 vehicles? Two of them? Different colors for his and hers? Who does that? Yeah, and they always have gigantic bows on the top that are almost as big as the car, and I want to know, where do you go to get a bow the size of a Volkswagen? Because I have not seen them in stores. But second of all, like, if I did that, first of all, I don't make enough money to do that, to go buy two fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 vehicles on a whim for Christmas. But if I did, and I bought cars without asking my wife first and was like, surprise, I bought cars, you would never hear from me again because I would be murdered. But another reason I tend to dislike the season is because of how much of a sports black hole it really is yeah the baseball hot stove more and more seems to be non-existent until after the new year although we had a little activity this week the nfl is there but college football games go through several weeks between the end of the regular season and the important bowl games although we do get some great conference playoff games and the army navy games there college basketball has some fun thanksgiving break tournaments but Outside a few key matchups from time to time, the real excitement doesn't kick in until after the new year, really February. The NHL and NBA seasons are so long that until the playoff push kicks in, we really only have a couple of occasional great matchups that you know you really want to see. The NHL gives us the outside games, and they're fun. The NBA gives us the Christmas Day schedule, and that's fun. And they're both designed to break up the monotony of a long season. So we're left with a little of everything, but nothing really great, hoping that the quantity and the variety makes up for the lack of any real quality in the games. October gives us everything. 
And then shortly thereafter, we have this black hole. I guess we also get the goofy college rankings to monitor and try to figure out what's going on there. Wouldn't you think there'd be a better system by now than relying on voters who at times don't seem to have a clue? And I know I'm bringing up a problem without suggesting a solution, but part of the problem is some of these voters just don't pay attention. And I'm not talking about the occasional team that catches everyone by surprise, say, for instance, this year's college basketball, where you got the Michigan Wolverines unranked up until last week, but then winning two big games over North Carolina and Gonzaga. Now they're up to number four. They jumped all the way, not just into the top 25 or top 10, all the way to number four. By the way, that ties the 1989 Kansas Jayhawks for the biggest jump from the unranked. And that is since the history of the polls began in 1949 or 1950, something like that. And what I'm talking about is relying on guys like the one guy who writes for the Daily Times in Tennessee. And my suspicion is that he doesn't watch a whole lot of games apart from Tennessee. Of course, I don't know. Maybe he watches the major matchups, but he certainly must not have been watching Texas Tech this week, who were ranked number 12 in the AP poll. But then he moves them up to number 11 after they lost. They went 0-2 this week, both losses to unranked teams. Anytime you have a selection like this that's in the hands of human beings, somebody's going to get it wrong. And you know that's been a hot-button issue for me for a long time in any selection process, the NCAA selection process, the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, voting for the awards, anything. You get voters who aren't actively involved. You get um, the, the example I always go to is a few years ago, it came out that there was a guy voting for the Baseball Hall of Fame who's a golf writer. <laughs> he had been a baseball writer way back when, and he still had a vote, but he hadn't actively been involved with baseball journalism in like a decade. And you have to somehow keep up a high set of standards for who's allowed to vote because you get guys like this goofball who's voting for teams he hasn't even seen. You know, it's you have to somehow stay on top of it and, and who has a vote and who doesn't. And I don't really know how to do that. And people have biases. And I get, look, I, this guy probably, this he had a lot going on. It's Thanksgiving week. Who knows what it was? And maybe he just didn't get to see the games this week. But those are the sort of circumstances that with a voting situation, how do you avoid that? And, I mean, maybe he didn't have time to watch the games, but did he have 30 seconds to check the score on Twitter and just see that they lost badly two games in a row? Like, it it would have taken such a little time and effort for him just to catch up before turning in his vote, and he didn't do it. And that, I think, is disgraceful. The thing is, when you have the responsibility to compare teams with one another, you have to know what's going on with them. You have to know what's going on with them all. You can't not be aware that a team you're suggesting to move up a spot in the rankings has just suffered two bad losses in a row. It's also why this season signals the annual debate over some sort of playoff system in college football. You can't leave it in the hands of voters who don't pay attention, or in fairness, can't really pay attention to everything. And while some would argue that, you know, that line of in or out is always going to be somewhere whether it's between the 4th and 5th ranked teams, between the 8th and ninth, between 16th and 17th, wherever it is, to which I'd respond that while many times the 5th ranked team, they could make a legitimate claim that they could get to number 1. Almost never, if actually never, can the ninth ranked team make such a claim. So I'm in favor of an 18 playoff. In fact, with the exception of number 8 Wisconsin, all the teams in the top eight have one loss. It's the number eight Badgers where the list of two loss teams begin. And I realize that could change this weekend. 
but I think it really supports my argument. You need eight teams. You don't need any more than that. And given that number four, Georgia, has the monumental task of having to beat number one, LSU, in this weekend's SEC championship game, they're staring at a second loss and falling out of the playoff picture. But should they? They have a bad loss to South Carolina. But I still see them as a top eight football program who could potentially, though maybe not likely, especially if they can't beat LSU this weekend, play their way through an eight-team tournament and win a title. I can see Georgia doing that. It's extremely difficult to compare one team to another and say which is better. Different conferences, different opponents, different game day weather conditions, and any number of variables add to that difficulty. If Georgia loses, who deserves the number four spot? And a spot in the playoff? Utah? Oklahoma? Baylor? Should there be extra consideration for a team based on their conference? And many give Utah only a marginal chance to make the playoffs despite only one loss because they play in the Pac-12. And maybe that works itself out tonight as they have to play number 13, Oregon, who are 10-2 and for the Pac-12 title. It'd be so much easier if there was one standard by which we compare each team instead of this multi-tiered sort of random standard like comparing each team to one another. Jesus' disciples experienced this same thing. Remember when Peter first came to the realization who, who Jesus Christ truly was? He immediately fell to his knees and confessed that he was not worthy. Luke chapter 5, verse 8 says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter realized his own spiritual bankruptcy compared to Jesus. But on another occasion, he and the other disciples were arguing about who is the greatest among them. They were debating on who would be Jesus' right-hand man. They knew they could compare. They could not compare to Christ, I should say. But each probably thought they compared favorably against one another. Most well-thinking people realize they don't measure up to a holy, righteous, loving God. But hey, against the likes of you, I'm not so bad. In fact, I'm pretty good. That's why we need God to forgive our sins based on Christ and not on ourselves. We don't measure up to God's standard of holiness. And to spend eternity in heaven, that is what we're compared to, not how we look or how we compare to one another. It's great that you're not a thief, you're not a rapist, or you're not a murderer. You may not be as bad as someone else, but you still don't meet God's standard. But there is good news, and that's that Jesus does. And by putting your faith in him, God is willing to forgive you based on Jesus' standard instead of yours. This is what Jesus offers, freedom from the burden of sin and guilt. Now, you've carried the burden too long, and there is no better time than now to give it to Jesus. The Bible promises that by confessing our sins, God's willing to forgive us. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter who you've hurt or who has hurt you. God loves you and wants a relationship with you. Let him be part of your life. Romans 10.13 says, For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus died on the cross, sacrificing a perfect and holy life in order to pay the penalty of your sins and mine. And when you ask God to forgive you, and you're willing to repent from your sin, he extends his remarkable grace and accepts Jesus' holy standard 
instead of your sinfulness. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But while Jesus died on the cross, gave his life there, he proved he had the power over life and death by rising from the grave three days later. The gift of eternal life in heaven is not something that you can earn. You can't be good enough. Salvation is only through asking God to forgive you and accepting by believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, you want to spend eternity in heaven, then you need to admit to God that you're a sinner and ask him to forgive you. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I hope you'd pray to God and admit your sin and guilt and tell him that you believe Jesus died on the cross for you, that he was buried and that he rose again. And I hope you'd ask God to forgive you and ask him to help you in repenting from sin. And if there's any way that we can help, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can reach out through our website, btgprogram.com. Perhaps there's something we can pray about for you. Hey, stick around. We've got plenty more to do. Along with Zach Barletta, I'm Rick Benson. You're listening to the Beyond the Game program. Taking a look back now on the week in Roberts Wesleyan College Athletics, this is the Red Hawks Recap for the week covering up through Thursday, December 5th. The Red Hawks Recap is being brought to you by Roberts Wesleyan College. Both the Roberts Wesleyan men's and women's soccer teams are in Florida for the NCCAA Division I National Championship Tournament this week after the number 6 men's team defeated number 9 Piedmont International University 5-3 on Tuesday behind two goals from Barrington Smith and a game winner from Terrell Spencer. The men were eliminated on Wednesday, falling to top-ranked Mid-America Christian 2-0. The women also opened up the tournament on Tuesday with a win over Piedmont International University 2-0. Maya Rutland and Morgan Rosano with the goals. On Tuesday, the ladies clinched a spot in the semifinals by playing Campbellsville University to a scoreless tie after double overtime. They'll take on number one Cedarville University on Friday. Also on Wednesday, junior Shane Fanning's buzzer-beating three-pointer gave the Roberts Wesleyan men's basketball team a comeback win over Mansville University, 109-99 in overtime. Junior Reggie Clark put together the best offensive game of his career, leading all scorers with 36 points. The women were also victorious over Mansfield on Wednesday, topping the Mounties 67-62. Sophomore Taryn Wilson recorded a double-double with 13 points and 13 rebounds. No home games in the week ahead for any of the Roberts Wesleyan athletic teams, but you can follow them on their website, robertsredhawks.com, or on Twitter, at RWC Redhawks. This has been the Red Hawks Recap, presented by Roberts Wesleyan College. If you know a high school athlete looking to become their best self, think Roberts Wesleyan College. Hi, I'm Dr. Dina Porterfield, president of Roberts. We recently won six conference titles, our teams have made three NCAA national championship appearances, and 96 student athletes were named East Coast All-Conference. And Roberts has the only NCAA Division II program in Greater Rochester. Tell the athlete in your life about Roberts. Visit roberts.edu. 
It took me a long time to be able to say Chandler has cancer because that is such a scary word. When St. Jude finds something that works well with a certain cancer, they share that with everybody. And knowing that we don't have to pay for all of the medical expenses, that's huge. We just have to worry about helping Chandler, and he's just my heart. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. Welcome back into the Beyond the Game program, btgprogram.com or at btgprogram. Sports talk from a faith-based point of view. The program is recorded in the BTG studio in Rochester, New York. It's heard all around the world via podcast. This week, we'd like to say hello to Bridgeport, Connecticut, one of the many places to download last week's program. Charles Nagy, former pitcher with the Cleveland Indians, was born in Bridgeport back in 1967. A three-time All-Star, Nagy played college ball at UConn. He won a gold medal with Team USA at the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. Baseball was a demonstration sport that year, so the medals are real. They just didn't count toward USA's medal totals. P.T. Barnum, Barnum and Bailey's Circus, is buried in Mountain Grove Cemetery in Bridgeport, Connecticut, a cemetery that he designed, by the way. The life and times of Barnum are quite extraordinary, even controversial, though he did make a number of charitable contributions in and around Bridgeport. You know who else was buried? In that same cemetery there in Bridgeport, the great writer Fanny Crosby, who wrote the lyrics for so many beloved hymns, a remarkable life if you want to look Fanny Crosby up. And if you want my opinion, there should be some sort of law that at least one Fanny Crosby song is sung in every church service. (laughs) Richard Belzer, Munch, on TV's Homicide, as well as Law & Order SUV, also born in Bridgeport. He carried that character from one show to the other. He's been all over the movies, been in television, music videos. He was a stand-up comedian, written a number of books. To those of you listening at Bridgeport, Connecticut, as well as wherever it is that you're listening from, we thank you for being with us. Not born at Bridgeport, our own Zach Barletta. He's here now with this week's Shenanigan Statements. All right, number one, despite their double overtime loss to the Spurs, the NBA needs to award the Houston Rockets a victory after an egregiously blown call which would have given them the win at the end of regulation. I actually agree. It was a ridiculous call. I can understand missing the call because in real time it it looked deceiving. But to not review it at all is inexcusable. And I know they're hiding behind policy, but this was a weird situation. In fact, they couldn't get an answer on what the call was. So it just to me, yeah, they should probably be given the win. What good is instant replay if you don't use it or, or don't use it correctly or even honestly. Rarely do I think there's ever a situation to change the outcome of a game, but this is an exception. And you can argue that the Spurs may have played the end of the game differently, so if you want to replay the final seven minutes or whatever it was after that play, that's fine. But the Rockets had won the game if not for that missed call. It's not a missed foul. This was a missed basket that they did not count. I say shenanigans. The basis for that is I say you cannot award them a victory just because things would have gone differently. I don't think you can make an assumption on the way the game would have gone. If you want to replay the last, uh, was it seven minutes and 50 seconds or something Something like that? that. Yeah, if you want to replay replay the last 750 of the game from that point on, that's fine. 
But the Rockets didn't just lose because of those two points. They missed their chance to challenge the call. They played like crap after the call was made. In my mind, there's no way you can just award them a win based on what could or would have happened. Yeah, I see your point, and, and I'm with you. I can live with what you're saying. But the whole thing with the not using the replay, that's right. just nonsense. My issue with this whole situation was that the Rockets were told that they had missed their window to challenge, but they missed it because they were trying to find out what the call had been that they would have been challenging. So if you're the official in that case, I think you have to let them challenge because it's your fault they didn't get the challenge in. They were trying to find out from you what the call was. So I'm with you. I, I I don't think you can award them the win, but I think that the referees handled it improperly. Yeah, there's a brotherhood among referees oh, yeah. and officials, and they stick up for one another, even in the to the video booth, and sometimes beyond what they should. I think. Well, number two, the Panthers this week fired head coach Ron Rivera with four games remaining in the regular season. Truth or shenanigans? The over under for fired coaches prior to the end of the regular season is three. That's it. Interesting question. (laughs) I actually agree with it. I I have no idea what the Falcons are waiting for with Dan Quinn. They're they're, they're three and nine. Where are you going? Nowhere. I I don't know why the Jaguars haven't moved on from Doug Marone at this point. I mean, the Giants, the Cowboys, the Browns, probably all looking at new coaches. Maybe the Cowboys and the Giants don't tend to ever do it Mm midseason. I know they have, but that's not their tendency. Um, the Browns, I listen, I don't know what they're waiting for, but I guess yeah. it's hard to can a guy without giving him at least one full season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think I'm going to say shenanigans again, just because for me, there were so many coaching changes made last year and the year before that I feel like that doesn't leave a whole lot of teams. Like you said, the Giants probably won't do it during the season. The Cowboys have said they won't do it during the season. Doug Marone, I agree, should be fired. But he should have been fired so many times over his career with the Jaguars that I'm starting to think it's just not going to happen. So I'm actually going to say shenanigans and say that most of the uh, the axes fall after the season is over. Number three, truth or shenanigans. This is a two-part question. Number one, we are witnessing the beginning of the end of the New England Patriots dynasty, which I feel like we've been saying for half my adult life, but we're still waiting. <laughs> and part two, the Buffalo Bills will be the first divisional rival to win an AFC East title. I'll be brief because I'm interested to hear what you say to this, but I'm going to agree on both counts. The offense misses Gronk more than they probably anticipated, and Brady isn't getting any younger. And the other teams are all improving. The Dolphins, the Jets, they all look better or at least are showing promise. And they're not going to be a pushover for the Patriots anymore. But I think the Bills are the closest to claiming a title when the Pats do ultimately vacate it. But I'm interested to hear what you think. Boy, I really want it to be. I really want it to be the end of the Patriots dynasty. And I, I, I'll i say that I agree. I do think it is just because, I mean, look, Bill Belichick's, what, closing in on 70? Eventually, you know, time is undefeated that's going to come to an end. I, I also look at that offense and I think it just looks bad. You know, Tom Brady is missing guys that are open. He's throwing interceptions that we're not used to seeing. Uh, look, they're a good team. Are they a 10-win team? Should they have 10 wins right now? Probably not. But they're really well coached. So um, I don't know if this year's the end of the dynasty, but no, I think no, I think, not saying that. I think next year we might see a changing of the guard. But they're going to be hard pressed to beat any of those teams: the Chiefs, who they play this week, the mm-hmm. Texans, who they've lost to, the Ravens, who they've lost to, and they got to win two of them in the playoffs. That's tough. 
And again, I'm not taking anything away from Belichick or Brady. Brady is arguably the best player that ever has been, best quarterback that ever. Terrific. But the window's closing. He's not getting young. You can't do it forever. And the Patriots have never paid for legacy. Maybe he's the exception, Mm -hmm. but I doubt it. That ain't going to happen. So is he looking at maybe even the last four games of his Patriots career, last four regular season games, and then whatever, however long they make it in the playoffs? Yeah, it's very possible. I mean, when he signed his contract extension, everybody said, well, here he goes. He wants to play till he's 50. But the way that the contract is structured, there's no guaranteed money after this season. The Patriots can get out of it scot-free, or he could get out of it scot-free. And to the second part of this question, um, the last several games, it looks like the switch has flipped for Josh Allen. He looks like looks good. You know, he looks like the guy, the guy that a lot of people said he never could be. He looks like he is. And the Bills are very quietly the number three team overall in the AFC. And was it not for a blocked punt touchdown, the Patriots would not have beaten them. Well, we're nearly out of time, so let's close out the show with our You Like That segment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Michigan State cornerback Josh Butler lost both his parents during his five years at college. During last Saturday's senior night festivities prior to the Spartans' game with Maryland, players are customarily accompanied by their family, but instead, Butler was accompanied by his dogs, Roxy and Remy. He had adopted both dogs to help him cope, with losing both of his parents. He lost his father in 2017 to a heart attack just hours before a game with Penn State, a game in which he played to honor his dad, and a year and a half later he lost his mother to breast cancer. Raising the dogs has been an outlet for him, much in the same way football had been when his father died. Butler wears his father's crematory tag around his neck, and he has a tattoo on his left shoulder of a pink ribbon that represents breast cancer awareness. Michigan State's Josh Butler and his comfort dogs at last Saturday's senior night festivities are what I like this week. What I like this week is that Mark Miller has resurfaced and is now on Twitter. If you're asking, who's Mark Miller? You're not alone. He's not a celebrity. But if you remember the video from 20-some-odd years ago of the guy who was interviewed on the news in Buffalo, who said the guy that said, Dallas is going down, baby. You don't remember that guy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the Bill starter jacket. Well, he's popped up again. He joined Twitter just to post the video after the Bills beat Dallas on Thanksgiving to say, Dallas went down, Gary. <laughs> Dallas went down. He, he resurfaced. He's got a thousand and some odd Twitter followers in one day. Wow. Yeah, it, it, the video that he made is great. It's got all the same intensity and energy of that original video from the 90s. And uh, it was nostalgic for me. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I think he needs to lead the charge for the Bills on Sunday, but uh, that was what I liked this week. Took longer than maybe he thought, and it wasn't as big a game, but I guess ultimately Dallas did go down. Dallas went down, Gary. Thanks so much for being with us this week on the Beyond the Game program. Please don't forget this radio program only hits the airways thanks to the generous support of our listeners. It's because of your prayers and because of your financial gifts that the Beyond the Game radio program is possible. Please pray about becoming a supporter of this radio ministry, and if you do feel led to give a financial gift of any amount at all, whether it be a one-time or recurring gift, please visit our website, btgprogram.com. For Zach Barletta, I'm Rick Benson. Lord willing, we'll be back together again next week right here at the same time. Be bold and be great this week, everybody. Be bold.